I want to read from Luke chapter 22, verse 15. I have eagerly desired, this is Jesus speaking, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. By the way, this is occurring the day before Good Friday. But we'll get to the Good Friday scenario in just a moment. He says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it, as referring to the Passover, it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Then he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, these words here are loaded with powerful information. So I hope that you came with an open mind to receive today. First of all, I want to point out that the Passover finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We got to remember that the Passover had been celebrated for about 1,400 years. It was a celebration of God's provision, but it was also a celebration of Moses. It was a celebration of Israel coming out of Egypt. It was a celebration of freedom from slavery. But I could say that the person who was at the center of the celebration was Moses. They were remembering Moses. And uh, so Jesus steps in here and he's going with his disciples to the Passover. I think we have heard these words so many times that maybe they lost their significance. So I want to take you back into the mindset of the disciples. These are among the most shocking words you will ever hear. Jesus is sitting at a commemoration of Moses. And he says, I'm taking this Passover meal. And from now on, you're not going to do this to remember Moses anymore. You're going to remember me. That's shocking. It would be like you came to our church on Christmas and Pastor Nathan said, we have made a decision at Toronto Celebration Church. From now on, we are not celebrating Jesus' birth anymore. We're going to celebrate my birth. I imagine Pastor Nathan said that on Christmas Sunday. From now on, we're going to celebrate not Jesus' birth, but my birth. Well, I imagine if you are a person who comes to this church, you might walk out of the service and turn to your friend in the car and say, I think that was our last visit to that place. And if you were really deeply involved, you might, uh, uh, you know, engage in some heavy discussion because it would be shocking, wouldn't it? It would be a shocking statement. In fact, if I ever went to a church and heard a pastor say that, it would be my last visit in that church as well. I'm just merely saying how shocking this is. Jesus is not taking like a day of his own kind of, let's have a Jesus day. He is taking the day that's dedicated to remembering Moses. That's who the day is for, Moses. And he says, he's basically saying as long as you have lived and your forefathers, this day has been to remember what happened in Egypt 1,400 years ago through Moses. But from this moment on, and for all time forward, this is not about Moses. It's about me. Those are, they must have been shocked. See, see, we hear this so often in the communion. Remember, we think, okay, it's just kind of, we repeat it, almost fall asleep. 
You know, these were fighting words. <laughs> these were revolutionary words, inciting words. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, I am taking over from Moses. He's basically saying what he had said at the Mount of Transfiguration or what had happened there when Jesus was there with Elijah and Moses and Simon Peter had said, let's build three cabins, one for each one of them. And then the Heavenly Father rebuked Simon Peter saying, no, Jesus is my beloved son, hear him. And then Moses representing the law And Elijah, representing the Old Testament prophetic order, had vanished. And we say, goodbye, Moses. Goodbye, Elijah. And here Jesus is drilling down further. He's saying this is no longer about the Old Covenant. It is not about what happened in Egypt anymore. It's about me. And he's saying that to a group of 12 men. Well, what in the world could they do about it? Because everybody else thought it was still about Moses. You're getting very quiet here now. Are you all right? And so he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. We're singing about the blood of Jesus. Well, this, this new covenant, it had been prophesied. Uh, Jeremiah, for example, it had been announced in Bethlehem by the angel. And, and, and it was about to be launched. So let me read some of these prophecies. Go to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, where the Hebrew writer is writing now approximately 30 to 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, but about his death and about this new covenant. And the Hebrew writer, we don't know for sure who it was, but so I say just the Hebrew writer. It says in there, now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no place or no place would have been sought for a second covenant. The the, the translation says, if there had not been anything wrong found with the first covenant, there would have been no need for a second covenant. Now, that's an amazing statement. Leave the verse up there because otherwise you might lose your false teeth when I say what I'm going to say next. So it says right here that God found something wrong with the old covenant. Did you know that? The old covenant basically is best described in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, those books are beautiful There's a lot of good things in those books. Tremendous pictures of Jesus, among other things. But what the Hebrew writer says here, there's something wrong in those books. Wow. So one part of the Bible says that another part of the Bible has something wrong in it. Don't look at me so strange. I ask you to bring your brain here. I mean, either it says that. It says it, it, it wasn't faultless. There was something wrong with it. Well, what was wrong with it, there were several things wrong, because it will be explained in a moment. It was that he couldn't make anybody holy. All the religious rules couldn't make anybody holy. You know, I wish I would have known this when I was 13 years old. When I got my first Bible, and it said Peter Youngren in gold letters, nobody ever warned me. 
Nobody ever said, you know, in the first part here, it's going to be something wrong. Nobody ever told me that. I should have got a warning, you know. So you've got to keep reading till you get to Hebrews and John and those, and then, then they'll straighten it all out. Did you ever get a warning like that? I don't know. That's why Billy Graham always said, start reading the Gospel of John first. <laughs> like, like, don't read the part that God found something wrong with first. Are you with me? You ought to warn your children before you give them their first Bible. Because they could be drowning in all those stories about David killing 200 Philistines and giving their foreskins to his father-in-law's dowry and all those stories. I mean, you know, they may never get to the gospel of John. Are, are you with me? So it's kind of important that, that, that we don't drown in the Jewish scriptures, that we get to the Christian scriptures. We get to, to, to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and Hebrews, and Romans. I like the way you look right now. You're like saying, what's he talking about? I'm talking about Good Friday. And, and then it says like this. Look at this. A little further down in the passage, verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. The word obsolete means outdated. And what is absolute and outdated will soon disappear. Now, that's a very strange statement. This is written about 64 after Christ. So about 31 years after Jesus went to the cross. So why doesn't it say here that it already has disappeared? It says that which is obsolete and outdated, the old covenant will soon disappear. Why doesn't it say it already has disappeared? Didn't it disappear when Jesus died on the cross? Stay with me. Don't go to the washroom right now. It said it will soon disappear. So, so let's break this down. It says here that the new covenant is a better covenant on better promises. Because it's all wrapped up in Jesus and not in us. And Jesus is a more sure foundation than any commitments or determination or willpower that you and I have. Jesus is the foundation. Come on now. Then it says that, that it was obsolete. Imagine that. It doesn't mean if something is obsolete that it's bad. A year ago, I changed my telephone. Now, my old telephone is not that bad, but I don't use it anymore. It's obsolete. I'm not mad at it. I still have it lying on the counter at home. I don't know why. I haven't used it for a year. I don't know. Maybe I think there's something to be discovered there one day. Uh, but it's nothing bad about my old telephone. It's just obsolete. I just had to change my passport this week. Actually, I had time left on it, but all the pages were already filled. So now it's, my old one is obsolete. They punched a hole in the middle of it. I, I'm nothing against my old passport. I think the picture of me in the old is better than the new, actually. But, but uh, as it goes, it's still obsolete. I have nothing against it. Are you with me? So it doesn't mean it's bad. I'm not growling at it. It's, it's, just, it's, a, it's kind of a souvenir. I can look at it and remember and, and think of things. But so it says here, and I, I'm driving this point home. Jesus is making a revolutionary statement. He's saying everything you know of religion and performance and trying to please God by your good works, it's over. You're not even going to celebrate like you've celebrated before. From now on, 
it's about me, he says. Wow, what a statement. Are you with me? I mean, I mean, Jesus is making it so clear that the law is over. It's obsolete. I mean, he had said six times, he said, the law says, but I say. The law says, but I say. Let me give you the timeline here, because some of you are still thinking about that. Soon will disappear. Look at the timeline I, I typed up for you. Here's the timeline of the new covenant. Before Christ, the new covenant was foretold. At year zero, the angel announces the new covenant. Good news to all mankind on the fields of Bethlehem. Then 33 AD on Good Friday, Jesus proclaims, it is finished. Everybody say, it's finished. She said, wasn't that, didn't everything finish? No, no, because in the temple, they still kept making sacrifices. Just because Jesus told those 12, remember me from now on, this blood is the blood of the new covenant. All the people outside, they were still going to the temple and they were bringing their lambs and their sacrifices. And then 64 AD, that's the year when almost everybody agrees the book of Hebrew was written. He states, the old covenant will soon disappear. And did you know that on August 4th, 70 AD, it did disappear. Six years after the Hebrew writer said it will soon disappear, it did disappear. Because that was the day the temple was destroyed. And once the temple was destroyed, there were no more sacrifices. However much you wanted to atone for your sin by sacrificing a lamb, it could not be done. There was no holy place of sacrifice. So the Hebrew writer was prophesying, if you wish, six years into the future. He's talking about what Jesus has done through his blood, how his blood was shed and, and the new covenant, and it's really here. And soon, whatever is left of the old, it will be completely gone. Now, after that, the Jewish people had the Torah. They had the scriptures. But, you know, they had no way to find peace with God. They had no way to get forgiveness of sins. Because to get forgiveness of sin, we know that the law couldn't make anybody holy. The only way you get forgiveness of sin is by making a sacrifice. And in order to make a sacrifice, you've got to find yourself a nice Levite. I mean, if, if you want to mix the old and the new covenant, you are really in deep trouble, my friend. If you ever sin and feel like you need forgiveness of sin, you got to engage in animal slaughter. I don't know if the Toronto bylaws allow that in your backyard, but you can't even slaughter the animal yourself. You have to bring in a Levite, and they don't grow on trees around here. To find one of them is not easy. You can stand by the bus stand and say, Levi, Levite wanted for hire. You know, it's be hard, right? And after 70 AD, the temple wasn't there. You couldn't just sacrifice any old place. So it was hard. It was over. It was finished. But, but there was a little bit of a progression, some years. And then he said, it will soon disappear. It will be totally gone. So I would say be very cautious in mixing the old and the new covenant. Because what if you needed forgiveness from sin? Oh, you say, Pastor Peter, oh, I just call out to Jesus. I just say, Jesus, thank you for what you... Oh, don't hasten now. That's the new covenant. That's the new... You can't do that under the old. Uh-uh. You, 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 thank God for that. We do that because of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. Oh, come on. Give the Lord praise right now. All right, well... You see, you see, I'm talking about this because once this sacrificial system was over, 
there was no way to find peace with God. And we always try to tell people this because people get so mixed up. You know, people have their Christian faith mixed up. People say the funniest things. They say things like, you know, I believe God is getting ready to judge our country. That's not from Jesus' teaching. Jesus never said anything along that line. That comes from reading the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And there's a reason why they're called old. They're good. We learn about Jesus. I love the Old Testament scriptures. But you know, the primary reason why the church fathers and the apostles put the Old Testament in the Bible was a Christological reason. It wasn't because they wanted for you to debate whether the earth was created in six literal days or six symbolic days or whether Jonah swallowed the whale or the whale swallowed Jonah and you could have all these discussions about that. That wasn't the thing that made them say we've got to keep the Old Testament in the scripture. It was a Christological reason. In other words, they found Jesus. He is the ark of the covenant. He is the ark of Noah. He is Samson's jawbone. He is the rock in the wilderness. He He is the healer of Job. He is the shepherd. He is our wisdom. So the reason it was all put together again was not because of the stories of people's bodies being cut in half and sent hither and yonder. It was because they found beautiful pictures of Jesus. All right. Have I been teaching you some things now? Are you getting this? Because we always, people say, oh, well, you know, God's God's so angry. No, no. No, we keep saying this. That sin, no matter how much sin exists in your city, in your family, sin cannot stop God's grace. God's grace flows in spite of however much sin there is in your family. But God's grace, when you receive it, it stops sin. It's the medicine. Oh, give Jesus praise for that. So that's just a few thoughts, a few thoughts. Now I'm going to get to my second point. Are you with me? Now I've left the thirsty, now I'm in Good Friday. So when I was meditating on this, I was out walking my dog in the woods this week, and these thoughts came to me. I began to, while I was walking my dog in the woods, I began to meditate on the words that Jesus spoke on the cross on Good Friday. And I thought what Jesus announced on the thirsty, this is the blood of the new covenant. I'm taking over. You're not celebrating Moses anymore. I said, well, I, let's, let's look at some of the statements Jesus said on the cross. And so let me give you some of them. This is really Good Friday. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a powerful statement. We could say, well, Jesus, they know what they're doing. The one who's beating you with a whip, they know what they're doing. Well, he's saying they don't understand the depth of what's transpiring. But you see how different this is from the old covenant? The religious covenant is you get what you deserve. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You got it coming, buddy. That many people are still living under the old covenant to think if something bad happened, they think, oh, I had it coming. It's one of my old sins catching up with me. My friend, you're, you're in the wrong religion. You're in the obsolete. You're in the obsolete part. This is the new part. This is the new covenant, forgiveness, love. Father, forgive them. They know not what what they're doing. Come on, let's give Jesus praise for that. Here's something else. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There was no paradise in in the old covenant. This may be a shock to some of you, but you can study any scholars. You know, 
In the Old Testament, there was no talk about going to heaven when you die. They didn't have a hope of going to heaven. Even today in the Jewish faith, they don't have a hope when I die, I go to heaven. There were two different kinds of belief. There were Sadducees. Everybody say Sadducee. And they're Pharisees. And the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. I mean, the, the rest of them believe that you die, you're put in a grave, and one day when the Messiah comes, you'll be resurrected. But there was no that you are in the presence of God, you're included in God's love. That is not in the, in, in the Old Testament. And even the word Sheol, which is translated hell in our Bible, it was never translated that way in the Jewish scriptures. That's after, you know, in the hundreds of years later, it was translated that way. So what the Jewish people had, they had all kinds of promises for this life. Honor your father and your mother, you're going to live a long life. So I guess you have to try to live as long as possible. Because once you die, it's just Sheol. You just Put there, and one day you'll be raised again. Are you with me? You, you can study any scholars on this. It's, 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 there was no paradise. There was no, so shall you forever be with the Lord. But now Jesus says, I've just introduced a new covenant in my blood. And so he says to the thief, you know, who in everybody's opinion wasn't worthy of salvation. He said, today you and I are going to be together in paradise. Oh, I love the new covenant. One day, we're all going to draw our last breath. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You, oh, I love our gospel covenant. You are included. There's paradise. There's forever wrapped up in God's love. Come on now. I hope I'm talking you happy here. Now, let me give you another one. This is a controversial one. Another word of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we know that this was describing Jesus' emotions. We know that actually the Heavenly Father had not forsaken Jesus, no matter how many songs we sing about that, and I'll prove it from the Scripture. We have heard that said, oh, the Father couldn't look on Jesus because he was so full of sin. What do you mean? If God can't look on sin, what good is such a God? Certainly he's not one to help you. Come on now. Well, where did we get this from? Jesus, hang with me. So, so where did we get this from? Psalm 22. This is a prophetic psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. This is a fuller uh, quotation of Jesus, what he felt on the cross. He thought, I'm, I'm separated. God, and, and all kinds of strange theologies have been built on this, which is actually very, very detrimental to people's image of God. The image is that, that God wanted to beat up on humanity. But since he, he's so loving, he said, well, I'm not going to beat up humans. I'm going to beat up my own son instead. And that's kind of nice and comforting since that wouldn't be you or I. But it still doesn't take away from the fact that God was hopping angry. He wanted, to, he wanted to vent on somebody. He just wanted to beat up somebody. Isn't that what you have heard preached? I've heard that for years. So it kind of still makes God look like he's this angry old judge. This, this executioner. He's, he's just, I want to beat you people up, but I'll beat up my son instead. 
That's where we get this concept from, which really came about a thousand years later through a bishop in Canterbury called Anselm, who introduced us to the church. The early Christians didn't preach that. The first few centuries didn't preach this idea. No, they preached what it says in Psalm 22. Jesus describes his feelings. Let me keep reading, and then we'll get to the solution of this little dilemma I have posed to you. He says in verse 6, I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. I'm poured out like water. I'm describing how Jesus felt on Good Friday. All my bones are out of joint. My mouth is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, O Lord, don't be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. This is describing Jesus' emotion. But is it really true that the Heavenly Father had forsaken Jesus? To find the answer to that, because you don't have to trust me, trust the Bible. We get to the end of the chapter, and what does it say? Verse 23, it says, praise him, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. So though Jesus felt like the heavenly father had forsaken him, we know right here in Psalm 22 that he had not hidden his face. He had not forsaken him. Hebrews 7 corroborates. It says he cried with vehement tears and he was heard. He was heard. Jesus was not forsaken. He was heard. Thank God for that. And that's why Jesus says in Luke 23, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Who was he saying that to? Somebody who was absent? Somebody who wasn't there? No, he was saying that because he had come to the realization, as is seen in the prophetic psalm, that, oh, my heavenly Father has not turned his face from me. He has not forsaken me. He will never forsake you, my friend, he will, because then it would, the same thing would be for you. So if you were in a terrible situation, if your life was covered with sin, what kind of a God as a Savior would that be? If you would think, well, if, if I've sinned, I've done bad, oh, God can't look at me. He can't touch me then. My friend, Jesus is the one who touched the leper that everybody else called unclean. He touched them. Religion said, don't touch them. Don't touch them. They're unclean. They will contaminate you. Jesus touched them. So based on the Scripture, Yes, Jesus felt forsaken. Have you ever felt forsaken? Have you ever felt like life was hell, life was bad? That's how Jesus felt. But then he had the new covenant discovery. No, I'm not forsaken. He has not hidden his face from me. You see, religion, the old covenant was always about separation. That God was somehow far away. He was out there. He was separated from them. But the new covenant, the gospel revelation is that in him we live and move and have our being. As Pastor Nathan preached last Sunday so eloquently, it's in Jesus. God put a witness of himself in us. You are not forsaken in your darkest moment. That relative you're praying for and you think, oh, they are in the grip of darkness. My friend, that relative is not forsaken. Jesus is there beside your relative, beside that family member. He, you cannot escape his love. Oh, it even says, David said, if I make my bed in Sheol, in hell, it says in our Bible, 
If I make my bed in hell, you're still there. Isn't that powerful? He, he, he said, if, I'm, if I live such a hell of a life, I make my own life hell. That means whatever hell I have going on, I deserved it. I made my own bed in hell. Can't pin it on anybody else. It wasn't your mama's fault. It wasn't your papa's fault. You can't blame your pastor. You can't blame anyone. You made your bed in hell. But David says, even if I did that, God, you're right there. You're there. Oh, hallelujah. Yes, for a moment, Jesus was like we would be tempted to think, I've been forsaken. Father can't look at me. But then he decided, no, he's here. He was heard, Hebrews 7. Hallelujah. Oh, come on, give Jesus praise. And then he says, I'm talking about some of the words on the cross, John 19, 30. It is finished. It is finished. It means it is accomplished. It's complete. It's fulfilled. Remember, we are liable for every jot and tittle of the law until everything is fulfilled. And he shouted, it is fulfilled. It is finished. The old covenant was all about, uh, uh, it wasn't finished. Our insufficiency. We were never enough. There was always something else we had to do. And so many people still live in that religion where you're never good enough. The preacher always makes you think that there's something else wrong with you. And you did the five points from last Sunday, but he says, now I got five more points on your step, on your road math to victory. Five more steps that you must do so that God can bless you. It never ends. But Jesus says, it's ended. It's finished. The price has been paid. I tell you, the statements of Jesus on the cross display the message of the new covenant. Good Friday is about the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And so, now I'm on my last point. How am I doing? <laughs> Remember Jesus. See, see <laughs> we quote this again so often, and of course we can't do an in-depth teaching every time because we take the Lord's table every Sunday here. So, I wonder what people are thinking when we say, do this in remembrance of Jesus. Are we trying to kind of squint our eyes and try to imagine Jesus? There he is in a robe and he's walking around there and he's touching a little bit here and giving some food away here. And I, I don't know what we think we're supposed to remember. If we try to, try to should let our, our minds kind of get carried away and we kind of develop a little own movie. Maybe there's some movie we remember about Jesus of Nazareth. Some, and then we try to, you know, now I'm taking the communion. I'm trying to remember, oh, what that would have been like on the Sea of Galilee. Ooh, ooh. Oh, yeah, that would have been so great. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. He says, remember, this is a whole new approach. Remember, it's no longer about Moses. It's about me. I'm changing your calendar. The calendar is not the same. This is revolutionary. It tells you something about Jesus knowing who he was. Are you with me? Now, Jesus had Jewish roots, but the new covenant is for the whole world. And the Jesus that emerges here, you know, the people who were the religious leaders, they had no problem understanding what Jesus was saying because they wanted to crucify him because of what he said. They understood what he was going for, that he was fulfilling the law. He was fulfilling the prophetic promises. He was doing it, and he says, it is finished. It is done. 
And so we approach in a whole new way. You know, so the, it's a new covenant. It's also called the new way. It's also called the living way. Well, if you have a new way, you must have an old way. And if you have a living way, you must have a dead way. And if you have good works, you also have dead works. Is that right? So you have these opposites. And he says, we've been cleansed. Our conscience by the blood of Jesus has been cleansed from dead works. We repent of dead works, our dead efforts at trying to make God please. We repent of that. We, we don't even think along those lines. We don't dare to think of anything as coming from ourselves because our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God who has made us ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter because the letter kills, but of the spirit because the spirit gives life. I'm just, I'm just reciting the apostle Paul to you here. A, a, a new and living way. So we're going to practice this. You know the center, the focus of this Good Friday service is this. It's the communion table. And we're going to partake. And we're not going to sit and remember everything that's wrong with you. It will be, take too long time anyhow. I can't remember everything that's wrong with me. It's too much. Uh, so we're not going to do that. That's one thing. He doesn't say, remember yourself and all your sins. Remember yourself and all your mistakes and flaws and failures. Oh, we'd be here till Sunday for sure. You couldn't even bring your friends for the presentation. No, he says, remember me. Remember this new covenant. You don't come like beggars anymore. You come in full confidence. You come just seeing who God is. God is not this angry God who is saying, well, I want to vent my anger and I'm beating up Jesus. I should have been beating you. I've been feeling like beating you up. But I guess I'll take it out on Jesus. No, that's not how it is. No, Jesus took our sin. Yes, it pleased the Father to see Jesus take our sin because that would be, that would be the redemption for all humanity. So of course, it pleased the Father. But our God is not some, some mean ogre in the sky wanting to beat people up. No, God is love. That's the one thing. There are three descriptions of who God is. He has many characteristics. But he is love, he is light, and he is life. And number one of those is love. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, so Jesus didn't take a beating on Good Friday because the father was just so ripping mad. He wanted to kick somebody around. Because if that's the way the father was, you better watch out. Because he doesn't change. He could have the same feelings towards you one day. But he wasn't. He said, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased in him. But he's taking upon himself humanity's flaws and shame and guilt. He's taking it. He's putting the sins away. He's nailing them to the cross. Every, every thing that could be written on a piece of paper to accuse you, it's been put away once and for all. I want us, we're going to do a number of things and we're going to culminate this service in the communion and believing Jesus for healing people. But I want to make sure 
that everybody here has had their eyes opened to this great love of God for you through Jesus Christ. God never looked at you with a frowning look trying to say, oh, I wish I could just kick her around. Oh, you've been bad again, but I guess I'll forgive you because I'm supposed to be gracious. No, God never looked at you in any other way but full of love. He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. With loving kindness have I drawn you. He doesn't say my love fluctuates. It depends a little bit how, how you are reacting and what you do. He says, I loved you with an everlasting love. And what Jesus did shows that love. I want everyone to bow your head with me right now. Thank you, Jesus. If you say after what you've heard, you say, I, I need this. I need to know my sins are forgiven. I need to know that my shame and guilt is gone. I want to receive this. Peter, you may say, I understand how you are here making a big differential between religion and the gospel. That religion is this mixture of old and new. But Jesus is saying, that's over. That's done with. This is the new covenant. And God's grace is flowing towards everyone. We don't discriminate against any person. So while every head is bowed, if you say today, Peter, when you pray right now, I want to be included. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. You say, I, or I want to be restored to God. I feel like I've drifted away from God. I want to be restored. I'm going to ask you where you're sitting to give me a signal by lifting your hand wherever you are. Every head is bowed so we have a little bit of privacy about all those. And I believe there are many here who say, I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that I'm restored to God. I, I, I want to have my eyes awakened to see who God really is for me. Lift your hand way up high right now. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And you, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. L lift your hand way up high. Lift it up. Yes, God bless you. 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 That's so beautiful. Can we all pray together right now? Heavenly, everybody say, everybody in the whole room, not just all those who lifted their hands, but everybody, would you pray like this? Would you say, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you that Jesus put away my sins. I can see God much better because I see God through Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, what you did for me. And I changed my thinking. I can't save myself but I receive the free gift that my sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. Amen. Give the Lord Jesus a big praise right now. Oh, hallelujah.